Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require signs, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. Chapter 6, verse 1. We'll read all the way through to the end, and then we'll, we'll do a bit of an introduction, and then we'll, we'll go through the verses as we are able. It pleased Darius to set over the princes, which should be over the whole kingdom, and over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was first, that the princes might give accounts unto them, and the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king thought to set him over the whole realm. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault, for as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. Then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Then these presidents and princes assembled themselves, assembled together uh, to the king and said thus unto him, King Darius, live forever. That should be the first clue. What do you want? <laughs> when somebody comes to me, oh, Brother Thomas, I'm so happy to see you. No, you're not. What do you want? <laughs> Nobody comes and says, oh, just your tie looks so nice today. This is what I do. I put my hands in my pocket and grab my wallet. (laughs) What do you want? Well, somebody comes up and the first thing that comes out of their mouth is flattery. And you know the flattery is not true. If you don't know it's not true, you got another problem. But if you know the flattery is not true, you know this is about to go somewhere that you don't. It's not going to be good. So you just stop them. And that's what I do. People, you know, Brother Waibi. You know, Brother Waibi is a huge help to me. He is a huge blessing to the things that I do here, and a lot, I get a lot done with his help. He calls me on the phone, and it's a, it's a cultural thing. They used to do this in Saudi Arabia. In Saudi Arabia, you'd be at work. I'm, I was an American military member. In the U.S. military, you go. Whatever you have to get done, you go get it done. In the Saudi military, if, if I walked in this room and I needed, I needed to go to Brother Gross, and I needed two things from him. In the U.S. military, I'd walk in, I'd say, I need you to do this and this, and then I'd walk out. In the Saudi military, I need you to do this and this. No, 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 come have some tea. 
Sit down. How's your mother? How's your father? How's your brother? How's your sister? What about your uncle on your other uncle's mother's sister's side? I don't have time for this. Like, Brother Waibi calls me, hello, brother. Hi, brother. How can I help you? How are you today? <laughs> I'm good, brother. How can I help you? Well, I have. So I, just get to the point and let's move on. Then he'll call me five minutes later. Hello, brother. How are you today? You already asked me that. <laughs> We've already established that the, the, the natural answer is good. Do you want a list of problems that I have? Or do you, do you want to get to business? All right, now... Somebody, now that's not, that's not the same thing as what these men are doing. These men are buttering the king up. Oh, king, live forever. Yeah, okay. The king should have immediately said, what are you up to? What do you want? Verse 7, all the presidents. Now, with what you know of where this chapter is going to go, is this true? Did all the presidents agree? Who's the chief president? Who's not present? <laughs> now, that, again, that should have been a clue for you to say, wait a minute. If all of you agree, where's Daniel? Where's my chief president? But no, he heard the, he heard the proposal and was like, you know, that sounds pretty good. And so he ended up in a stupid position. Verse 7, all the presidents of the kingdom, the governors... Uh, and the princes, the counselors, and the captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for 30 days, save of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which altereth not." Now, we're going to talk about this. I'm, 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 I'm going to try not to slow down too much. But can you see right there in verse 8 a stark difference between the political order of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom versus the political order of the Medes and the Persians? Once this decree is made, the king, his hands are tied. Once it becomes a law. Now, wouldn't that be great if that worked here? <laughs> We have a law. You have to obey it or be enforced. I mean, that's how it's supposed to work. That's how your citizens know what the boundaries are. We have a law in place regarding this. If you violate that law, the, poli the police, the government, they're going to come after you. They're going to deal with you. Well, Darius knew, and you'll see as we go through the chapter, once this, this concept I mean, what, 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 is there, what, what exists that would prevent Darius from saying, well, I changed my mind? A law. These were a people who obeyed law as best they could. And so the only thing that, that prevented him from saying, well, I'm the king, I just changed the law, was the fact that it's a law and he can't, the, the, the law of the Medes and the Persians can't be changed. It can't be altered. And, and so that's, that's a, I mean, that's a, there are a lot of benefits to living in a kingdom like that, as long as the laws are not stupid. <laughs> if the laws are halfway decent, then you as a citizen, you know what to expect on a daily basis. But if they're, if they're arbitrary and useless, or if you live in a country that just makes laws and nobody ever sees it again, or, 
or, or does or it, you never hear of it again. Nobody enforces it. It means nothing. Well, why was it in, why was it put in place in the first place? Who, why was it there? Why do you need it? It, 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 it means that you don't know what's going to happen to you on a daily basis. It's, it's not a good place. In fact, it, it impedes your citizens' willingness to, to be productive. Because if they don't know what's going to happen to their earnings, they don't know what's going to happen to their lives. If I'm going to end up in jail today for no reason whatsoever, or, um, or I'm going to work hard and, and some group or people or government or whatever is just going to take my money, then why go work? Why do anything? Just sit around and do nothing. If I'm going to go to jail if I do something. I'm going to go to jail if I don't do something. Why not just go do nothing? <laughs> and so it, 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 the, more that, the more that your kingdom or government, whatever the case may be, puts realistic and reasonable laws in place and then enforces them, then, then the more sane and the, more, uh, the better that your society can operate. They know what the boundaries are. They know what to expect. Verse 9, wherefore King Darius signed the writing and the decree. Now then, Daniel knew that the writing was signed. He went into his house and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem. He kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before, the, before his God, as he did aforetime. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying. <laughs> Do you think they knew where to assemble and when to assemble? Daniel was so trustworthy. They knew exactly what he was going to be doing and when he was going to be doing it. So they said, let's go meet there at 12 o'clock. He'll be there. So they go. They assemble. There he is praying. All right, let's go tell the king. It's, it's a, it really is a dirty, dirty situation. Uh, in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplications before his God. Then they came near and spake before the king concerning the king's decree. Hast thou not signed a decree? Now, this, all this is is manipulation. Did, king, didn't you sign a decree? About, it's like, you know I signed the decree. You're the one that proposed it. You came in here and asked for it. Why are you asking me this stupid question? So again, the king should have been thinking here, uh, what are you up to? You're up to something. Didn't you sign a decree? Yeah, I signed a decree. You know I signed a decree. What do you want? So these are things that I, this is why I could never be a politician. Because I can't, I can't do this. I can't talk in, in half meanings, trying to manipulate someone or lead a crowd of people in a certain direction. I'm just going to tell you what it is or what's on my mind or what I think or whatever the case may be. It's best to just be upfront and honest and cut this off. Somebody comes to me and say, hey, Brother Tommy, didn't we? Now, what do you want? What are you, what are you getting at? What's the purpose of this conversation? Just get to the point. Don't try and manipulate me or try and steer this conversation or try and get my mind going somewhere. Just tell me what you want, and then I'll decide if I want to go there or not. And so they come in, and they're going to try and further manipulate the king. Has thou not signed a decree that every man that shall ask a petition of any god or man within 30 days, save of thee, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Notice how the Lord emphasizes that repeatedly through this chapter. Then at verse 13, Then answered they and said, Before the king... 
that Daniel. <laughs> In other words, he's not one of us. That Daniel, that's not, that doesn't belong here, that you allowed to be here, that you gave this position. That Daniel, which is of the children of the captivity of Judah, again, king, not one of us, regardeth not thee, O king, nor the decree that thou hast signed, but maketh his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men assembled unto the king and said unto the king, Know, O king, that the law of the Medes and Persians is that no decree nor statute which the king establisheth may be changed. You see that? Nebuchadnezzar would have said, oh, well, I disagree with it. Change it. And there'd been nothing you can do about it. No, you, you were trying to manipulate me. I see that now. You're going in the lion's den and Daniel's going to go home and pray. <laughs> but as you, as you go from the head of gold to the chest of silver, it's, it's, a, it's a decline in power. It's not necessarily a decline in the ability of this of, of, of military might, the ability of this kingdom. It was nearly as big, if not bigger, or, or same size as as the Babylonian kingdom. In fact, it swallowed up the Babylonian kingdom, and and so the the when when the Bible refers to it as being a, a lesser power, this seems to be the indication that they've lost as the head of state, he has lost that absolute power that Nebuchadnezzar had. Whomso will he, he killeth, whomso will he let live, and whomso will he set up, whomso will he tears down. Nebuchadnezzar could do whatever he wanted. There, was no, there were no presidents. There were no law of the Medes and Persians that, that once you've put it into writing and sealed it, that, that that's it. There's nothing you can do about it. Nebuchadnezzar did what he wanted. And The Bible repeatedly seems to indicate, contrary to popular belief, that that's the type of government that God would establish if he were to establish a government. In fact, when he did establish a government, what was it? It was a king. He had no shared government. It was Saul. You're the king. In fact, he told Israel, before I do this, I'm going to make him king which means he's the sole political authority in your kingdom. And if he wants to take your sons and he wants to take your daughters, he's going to do it. Are you sure you want that? Oh, we want a king like everyone else. Uh, Okay, I'm going to give it to you. But are you sure you want what you're asking for? People see what what they think to be the, the positive benefits of something they want. And they get so excited about the positive, they refuse to look at the potential negatives. <laughs> and then when negatives come with it, well, I didn't know it was going to be like that. Well, you, you should have known. You should have looked into it. So I, I wish I had a car. Okay, you're going to change the oil and the brakes. And if it breaks down, you're going to tow it. You're going to repair it. You don't just get a car. <laughs> you get the responsibilities that come with a car. Well, I wish I had a house. Do you? <laughs> When the roof leaks, you're going to fix it. The lights go out, you're going to change it. You're going to cut the grass, you're going to take care of it. You don't just get the positive benefits of having a car and a house, which they're tremendous. You also get 
the negative benefits, which are tremendous and can be costly. You want a king? Yes, we want a king. Okay, he's going to take your sons and daughters. Uh, Well, you know, he probably won't do that. No, I'm telling you, he's going to take your sons and daughters. And then what did he do? What has every king that has ever existed done? If I want your people, I'm taking them. And that's it. If I want your money, I'm taking it. And so that, that just seems to be the way these things go. Um, then the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself. And he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men assembled unto the king and said unto the king, No, O king, that the law of the Medes and the Persians is that no decree nor statute which the king establisheth may be changed. Then the king commanded, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the, the, the den of lions. Now the king spake and said unto Daniel, Thy God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. And a stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that the purpose might be might not be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and passed the night fasting. Neither were instruments of music brought before him, and his sleep went from him. He's deeply concerned about the stupid thing he just did. Darius loves Daniel, and uh, we'll we'll look at that a a little bit more in, in a few minutes. Verse 19, Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And he came to the den. He cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. And the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God whom thou servest continually able to deliver thee from the lions? Then said Daniel unto the king, O king, (laughs) live forever. My God has sent his angel and hath shut the lions' mouths, that they, that they have not hurt me, for as much as before him innocency was found in me, and also before the king. O king, have I done, O king, have I done no hurt? Then was the king exceeding glad for him, and commanded that they should take, take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken out of the, the den, and no manner of hurt was found upon him, because he believed in his God." <laughs> Did you catch that? No manner of hurt was found upon him because he believed in his God. That's, that's incredible. Verse four, uh, 24. And the king commanded and they brought those men which had accused Daniel and they cast them into the den of lions. Them, their children, and their wives. You better be very careful what you do who you accuse, choices you make, places you go. It's not just going to impact you. It's going to impact your family. When you do something stupid and it gets you in trouble, it's what people think. Well, it's, it's just me. No, it's not just you. Are you married? Well, it's you and your wife. You have children? Well, it's you, your wife, and your children. Anybody else live with you? You take care of your parents? Do they live with you? Well, now it's you, your wife, your children, and your parents. You, 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 don't, you don't live alone in a little bubble that, that doesn't affect anybody else. The, the reason we live, the reason, the reason sin produces death 
dismemberment, uh, disease, all the horrendous things that our bodies deal with. It, it, it's, it's, it's not, I mean, a child who gets cancer, what did that child do to get cancer? But sin is in the world and it's working. And because we live in a sin-cursed world and because what you do will affect 20 other people, whether you like it or not, or whether you know it or not, or whether you thought about it or not, what ends up happening is you go and you do something, then the results come in, you're like, well, I didn't know it was going to affect them. Well, you should have known. You can't do that. You know, you, you toy with your finances and you lose your home. Well, where are you going to go? Where are your your children going to go? Where's your wife going to go? You couldn't stop doing something stupid. And so now now the consequences are paid by everybody. These men wanted to accuse Daniel. They didn't care if it cost his life. Now those men and their families, who may have loved Daniel or hated Daniel, had nothing to do with this. Now they're going to suffer the consequences of the stupidity of the man who led their home. Especially if you, it doesn't matter who you are. Every, it's true for everybody, but it's doubly true for the men who lead homes. You have a wife at home, you have children at home. Your decisions on a daily basis are going to impact them. You better be very careful. Are you a wife in a home? Your decisions on a daily basis are going to impact that home. You better be very careful. You should guard, you guard your home with your decisions. You guard your home with the people you relate with and and deal with. You guard your home with the choices you make, how you spend your money, where you go. Do you go to church? Do you not go to church? Whatever it is you do, you're opening a doorway into your home. And you're going to cause the other people in your home to either be rewarded or suffer the consequences of your choices. And here these people are being thrown into a den of lions because the man that led their home was an idiot and made terrible choices. Back to verse 24. And the king commanded, and they brought those men which had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, and their wives, and the lions had mastery over them. Uh, So it didn't go well for them. Apparently, the lions knew what they were doing uh, and break all their bones in pieces or ever they came at the bottom of the den. Then King Darius wrote unto, the, unto all people, nations and languages. And this is going to sound really familiar that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied unto you. I just threw a whole family in the lion's den and I heard their bones crushing. Peace be multiplied unto you. <laughs> It's Nebuchadnezzar all over again. Verse 26, I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. And his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall be shall be even unto the end. He delivereth and rescueth and he worketh signs and wonders in heaven and in earth who hath delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Very interesting. All right, I've got some introductory info. I'll read through it. Uh, it's just basically 
retelling these ideas from a different perspective. I'll read through it quickly, then we'll move down, move through the verses uh, as quickly as we can tonight. Daniel chapter 6 illustrates a few realities. Either way, it demonstrates the problematic positions that faithful Christians will find themselves in if they obey the Lord. If you're going to live in obedience to God, you're going to have trouble. It's, it's, in fact, if you don't have trouble of some sort, there's a good chance you're not living loud enough or steadfastly enough to the Lord. Now, that, that you've you got to be careful. You don't want to go causing trouble. That trouble should come naturally because of your faithfulness to God. All right, so if you're out looking for trouble, that's a whole different situation. You deserve what you get. <laughs> but if you're quietly, properly living a Christian life, you're going to come into conflict with this world. There's no way around it. They want you to do things that you're not willing to do. And then your unwillingness to do those things makes them feel shame. And instead of admitting their shame, they respond with righteous indignation. That's just how it's going to go. What had Daniel done wrong? In fact, according to the biblical narrative, he was about as perfect as a man can be. And they hated him. Now they will see they hated him because he was in a position they wanted to be in. And they could not perform and act the way Daniel acted. Therefore, there was no chance they were going to take his place. So they had to find another way to get him out of the way. They had to manipulate the situation. If you find yourself having to manipulate a situation to get ahead, you're, you're about to be in serious trouble. You're, you're about to destroy your life. <laughs> Don't do it. Work hard. Be faithful. Do it right. Do it better. And then God will exalt you. But if you try and maneuver and manipulate to get something, uh, you're, you're, you're heading towards trouble. Along with your family. This world is not our home. Therefore, we will be placed in circumstances that exist as a test of our faith or by the very nature of a sin-cursed world. Ephesians chapter 2 informs us that there is a course to this world and it is against God. So that's very important. Ephesians 2 says that the world... Has a course. If if you think about following a course, that means there's a designated path and you're following it, right? If you're going to go run a race, you're going to get a map or something that tells you here's the track. Here's the course that you're going to follow. All right. The natural course of this world is against God. All right. God says... No homosexuality. We love homosexuals. All right? God says, a man shall not wear that which pertains to a woman. Well, that man says he is a woman. <laughs> so, <laughs> we think about that, God. <laughs> um, God says, no drinking. Well, you walk around town and there's billboards for alcohol everywhere. Um, you can go to Plot 99 and they won't sell you plastic, but they'll sell you enough alcohol to kill you. <laughs> you know, whichever, you know, as long as it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, you, you, you know, it's just that that's what the world does. What, whatever God says is righteous, they're going to do the opposite. And they're going to try and encourage you to go with them. And they're going to make it look, they make going against God look beautiful. 
They make sin look so enticing and, and beautiful and wonderful and artistic. I mean, they have, they have mastered the ability to encourage you to join them in their sin by disarming you. And they disarm you through movies and music and uh, YouTube and Facebook and everything else that's, that's meant to make you feel more comfortable with homosexuality and transgenderism and uh, fornication and alcohol and drugs and all these other things that, that the world likes to partake of. Well, we're not going that direction. We don't follow the course of this world. We follow God who has us going in a completely different direction. Well, the problem is that there's going to be an area here where we're going to be in conflict. And the world's going to be saying, hey, you need to come with us. Why won't you come with us? You think you're better than us? Well, I mean, <laughs> in some ways, yes. I mean, I, I'm a man. I know I'm a man. I don't think I'm a woman. And so I think that is better. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't have any conflict with that. Um, but, I mean, we're all sinners, if that makes you feel better. <laughs> Uh, but I think following God is better. But they don't want you to follow God. In fact, they hate God. And so they're going to put pressure on you. You want to keep your job? Well, you need to come out with us and, and hang out and, and be one of us. Well, why, why do I need to do that to keep my job? Because you have something going on on your job that's not right. And if I come in and I don't join this crowd... And also do with you that which is not right. You're going to be exposed and you're going to be angry and you're going to be, you're going to be mad at me. Though all I did was try to do right. <laughs> Jesus said, what, you know, he said, you, you hate me and you want to murder me because I tell you the truth. And that's how this world acts. Like, no, don't, don't tell me a man can't become a woman. Well, I'm sorry, but a man can't become a woman. Oh, you're a racist. You're a bigot. What race did I, what race am I hating here? I don't understand. The, the race of what? I mean, as far as I know, you have the, a black race and you have a white race and you have an Asian race. You have all these different races. What does that have to do with a man becoming a woman? <laughs> Nothing. It's just a name they can throw out at you and try to make you, try to shame you. If you're a white person in the world today, the last thing you ever want to hear is, is to be called a racist. That is like the, the, the worst thing that can happen. Well, now it's, it's used so much that it means nothing anymore. Every, everybody's a racist who doesn't agree with the progressive movement that's, that's, trying to, that's trying to take hold of the course of this world and force everyone to go against God. All right, so if you're going to live godly in Christ Jesus, you're going to run into conflict. Conflict that is the natural outworking of trying to be honest and have integrity and to be godly and to be faithful in a world full of dirty, filthy, crooked, just lying people who need you to join them so they can continue in their endeavors. Because when you show up, and you won't do it, their conscience kicks in. And when that conscience kicks in, they're going to respond one of two ways. They're going to say, you know, you're right. Can you help me? 
or they're going to say, I'm telling everybody out here, we're going to come out here and stone you. <laughs> we can't have you here not joining us and not being a part of what we're doing. Well, what are you doing? We don't know. It's just not what you're doing. <laughs> now, because of this, we will face ultimatums meant to challenge our faith in the Lord. This trial of your faith may be subtle or blatant opposition. If it's subtle in nature, it should be resolved by obedience. That's the resolution. Not fighting, not arguing. Just look, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't be a part of that. I have work to do. I'm going to get back to my job. Well, I'm going to get you fired. Do what you have to do. You remain obedient. You keep doing what you're supposed to be doing. And you, you allow God the opportunity to work out the details. Now, if God doesn't show up and fix it, then you get fired. You move on. You go get a job somewhere else where hopefully you can be honest and do what you're supposed to do. Sometimes there's just nothing you can do about it. We live in a dirty, sin-cursed world. Or it might be that God shows up in such a major way that everybody who was trying to bother you ends up getting fired and thrown out and thrown in a lion's den. (laughs) Maybe not in the lion's den, but you know. Darius did not intend to place Daniel in this position, but his co-workers intended to bring about his end through his faithfulness. They knew Daniel was the only thing they could count on Daniel to do wrong (laughs) was to be faithful. So they had to find some way to make his faithfulness illegal. And they did it. They came up with a way. And they used it against him. But what did Daniel do? We read the chapter. Daniel went and formed an army and came back and (laughs) killed everybody. No, Daniel stormed into the king's palace and said, you know what a stupid thing you've done? (laughs) No. Daniel knew the decree had been signed, and he went and prayed as he had always prayed. He did nothing different. He didn't retaliate. He didn't fight. He didn't say, we've got to band together and stop this thing. He just said, I'm I'm going to go pray to God like I've always prayed to God, knowing there would be consequences. He was willing. This is the, this is the difference. This is what everybody's trying to do. This is what, what Christians try to do today is they want to try, and so far as they, they are faithful to God, they want to try and continue doing whatever their pet doctrines are. They want to keep them. Whether they're right or wrong, they want to keep them. And so when the government or a job or whatever does something to infringe upon their little pet doctrines, they want to fight. They want to retaliate. So they both want to keep their pet doctrines and they want to fight the government. (laughs) I don't think you can find a single shred of biblical evidence for anything like that. What you and I are supposed to do is, do you know what God wants you to do? Do you know, according to the word of God, how God wants you to live? Okay, if the government or your job or whatever comes and says, you need to stop doing that. All you say to them is, I'm sorry, I can't stop doing that. And then you continue to do it faithfully and and be respectful. Be gracious. Be understand. I understand you want me to stop doing that. I I get it. I do. But I can't stop doing that. I'm sorry. You're going to stop preaching in the name of Jesus Christ in this country. I'm sorry. I can't do that. Now, if they tell you you have to give a, a vaccine, you have to get a vaccine, you have to do something stupid like that. 
I mean, if you can push back against it and you don't want it, then, then try. But ultimately, if the government says you're required to get it, guess what you're going to have to do? Now, people lose their minds over, it's funny, you know, we'll take, a, again, we'll take America, for example. You have all these people, they're fighting vaccine mandates. And I'm glad they are. I don't, I don't want this stupid vaccine. I don't need it. There are people who might need it. There are people who it might help. Now we know scientifically, we have an abundance of data that makes very clear that probably 90% or more of the world's population does not need the vaccine for, for you, know, you know, the imaginary disease that, or the, the, the vicious disease that just tried to kill everybody. You know what I'm talking about. And so 90% of the world or more doesn't need the vaccine. That is, that is a scientific fact. That is a, that there is objective information to prove to you that you don't need it unless your immune system is somehow compromised, unless you're extremely old or extremely fat. <laughs> Those are the three people that suffered from this disease. All right? So for me, I've also had, I had it. I had the virus which means I have antibodies, which we now know also scientifically that if you have the antibodies naturally, it's far better than having the vaccine. All right. So, so all the stuff they were saying in the, in the middle of all this stuff, that was, of everything that was going on, it was all a lie. And it made lots of people multi-billionaires, not millionaires, billionaires. It made a lot of people a lot of money. All right. So if the government comes and they say, if you want to continue your ministry in Uganda, if you want to travel, they're not going to say if you want to continue your ministry. They're going to say, if you want to travel to Uganda, you have to have this vaccine. Well, then I have to get the vaccine or go home. What, what Bible verse would I use to say what you're doing is ungodly? You can't force me to get this vaccine. There's not one. So you, you can't, and this is what Christians do, they, they confuse spiritual battles, biblical battles, with things they just don't want to do. Now, the, that particular, those particular vaccines, if you think of, uh, uh, so, so we're going to go to Rwanda this month with my family, which means my children, in order to get back in Uganda, they have to have a yellow fever vaccine. I don't want to give them a yellow fever vaccine. I'm not anti-vaccine. I think if you need the vaccine, you should get it. I'm glad they exist. They have done much to help the world in, in many ways. There's, you know, vaccines are not the problem. I just, I'm not going to give my child 85 vaccines just in case. <laughs> All right, so if we get in a situation where I think we should have the vac- a, a vaccine, then I'll give it to my child. Well, if we want to travel to Rwanda and come back to Uganda, they've got to have it. So we're going to give it to them, even though we don't want to. If we're ever going to leave Uganda and come back, they have to have it. There's nothing we can do about it. But, of course, now they're old enough that they can, you know, they'll, they can understand a little bit more. Adrian's going to struggle a little bit more because he's not going to understand what's going on. You can't explain to him what's going on. And, and, and we hate that part of it, but, but their bodies can deal with it a little bit better. They can process what what's going to be injected into their body a little bit better because they're a little bit older. All right? So you've got to decide on an individual basis whether you, you want it or not. 
But a vaccine like the yellow fever vaccine, an old school protein based vaccine, it has an incident rate of about one in one million. That means potentially one out of every one million people has a negative or adverse reaction to that vaccine. That's pretty good. (laughs) I think more people get sick from taking, you know, Tylenol than get sick from getting a vaccine, that type of vaccine. Some of these new vaccines that came out for this special disease that's been floating around, it has an incident rate of about one in 800. You understand the difference? Why would you take that (laughs) unless you really needed it? So one out of every 800 people who takes one of those vaccines ends up with serious health, serious adverse conditions from taking it. One out of every 800. That's terrible. One out of a million. I mean, that's those odds are pretty good. (laughs) One out of 800. That's not good. So the point is, the reason I'm going through all this and telling you all this, explaining all this, it's not unrelated to what we're talking about. The world is going to put you in difficult situations. Choose your battles. God gave the government a lot of power and expects us to be obedient, even if we don't like it. So if if you live in a country like America where the government says you're required to get this and you can say, no, I have a constitutional right not to do that. OK, well, then you have some leeway. Your government, if your government is structured in such a way where you can say, let's take this through the court system. Let's see what the courts decide. And, and we go from there. Fortunately, the courts have sided with people who don't want to be forced to to take a vaccine. But what am I going to do if America says, in order to come back to your own country, you're required to get this vaccine? Never go back to my country? (laughs) Build an army and go fight my country over a vaccine? But this is how people think. And then they, they act as though fighting a government over a vaccine is the same as being godly. You understand the problem? You can't confuse those two. If you don't want the vaccine or you don't want something your government is forcing on you, then go through the legal process to try and and correct it. But if it doesn't work out in your favor, guess what God said? (laughs) Obey the government. Now, the government comes and says, you will not pray to your God for 30 days. Well, for a lot of Christians, it would make no difference because they don't pray anyways. (laughs) But if you do pray and you you cherish the ability to pray to your God, the response is, I'm sorry, I can't obey that. You're, You're asking me to directly, the Bible says, I am to pray without ceasing. And you're telling me, I can't do that. So my response to you is, I'll do my best to try and and respect that. But I'm just telling you, it's not a law I can keep. I'll try not to do it in your face. I'll try. I mean, you know, whatever leeway you can give me, I, I appreciate it. But I have to pray. God expects me to pray. 
It's a requirement as part of the relationship I have with my God. I have to do it. And so I'm going to do it. Okay, well, if you pray, you're going to jail. I understand. I I understand there are consequences. Unfortunately, I am going to have to suffer those consequences because I'm not going to stop praying. If you put me in jail, I'm going to pray in jail. If you execute me, it is better for me to be with the Lord than it is to be here. So that's the biblical mentality. That is hard. Now, I am naturally the kind of person, someone tells me, you're not allowed to do this. I naturally want to be like, oh, yeah, (laughs) that's exactly what I'm going to do. (laughs) All right. So you have to resist that. That's the flesh. That's your flesh saying, I belong to God, so I'll do whatever I want. That's not what God said. God said, you belong to me, so you're subject to the governments I put in power. Obey them. I don't like the president. I don't either. (laughs) Couldn't you just hear God saying, I don't like him either. (laughs) I wouldn't want him to be my president, but he is yours. I don't like my senator. Tough. So politics is not our battle. Now, this can also be seen as a picture of the Jewish remnant in the tribulation. They will be confronted with an ultimatum offered by the Antichrist. They can take the mark he offers or be left for dead. The norm will always be that a small remnant will refuse to give in to the course of this world and remain faithful to God. Thus, the Lord protects the tribulation remnant just as he protected Daniel. Now, you and I, as as the church, we have no promise of protection. So our attitude, and I I know it's in my notes here, but I'll I'll say it now and then it'll be repeated. And so you'll get it twice and stir up your pure pure minds by way of remembrance. Our attitude should be the attitude of the three Hebrew boys who said, our God can save us from this if he wants to. And so, you know, you, you do what you have to do to me. But if God doesn't want me to go through this, he will absolutely get me out of it. But if, and if he doesn't get me out of it and you kill me, it's, I end up with the Lord anyway. So either way, it's a win-win for me. Either God's going to show up and, and relieve me of this, or I'm going to go through it and come out on the other end somehow better for the honor and glory of God. Um, but I, you're asking me to do something I can't comply with. You want me to bow down to your God? I'm sorry, it's not going to happen. I cannot do that and will not do that. Darius appointed three presidents. Daniel was the first of the three and was preferred above the others. Daniel's reputation in the previous kingdom followed him into the kingdom that, 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 that followed. It's <laughs> great wording there. This again produces an illustration for us that demonstrates our behavior and choices now will follow us into the Lord's kingdom to come. Daniel's excellent spirit, faithfulness, and diligence caused him to be favored above the others. The Lord Jesus is seeking the same from us now. So, Daniel was faithful under Nebuchadnezzar. Here we are, the, you know, we don't know how long after Darius took out um, Belshazzar this is, but 
I mean, how, how much time did he actually get to know Daniel? What, what made Darius, who just took over the kingdom, want Daniel in that position? My guess is testimony, <laughs> word of mouth. That's the man you want in charge. And Daniel's in his late 80s or early 90s at this point. We're talking 68, 69, 70 years later after the captivity. So if he was 20, he's about 90 right now. Daniel came to be despised by men who desired the position he held. But he gained this position by merit. And the men who hated him could not compete with his spirit, faithfulness, and diligence. Thus, through corruption, they devised a plan to remove Daniel. They did not care if Daniel lost his position or even his life. Daniel hindered their ability to attain advancement in the kingdom. They could not outwork him, so they would use his honesty against him. Which you would think would be a difficult thing to do. But in a country that adheres to its laws, all you got to do is get a law put in place that would cause Daniel's manner of living to become illegal. And that's what they did. After searching, they concluded he was too faithful, too honest, and too diligent. The only way forward was to use his God, his God against him. This allowed them to implement a plan that preyed upon a king's haughty and high-minded attitude. Darius was known as a goodly man and king. This was a foolish decision that he came to regret deeply. When a person or a group of people approach you with, a, with flattery, you should automatically understand that something is wrong. You are not as good or as great as they are testifying to, and something else is at play. This is when a healthy understanding of your actual worth is critical. If you think too highly of yourself and someone comes along hoping to use your self-centered pride against you, it will be easy to accomplish. If you think you're great and somebody shows up telling you how great you are, you're like, wow, I like this guy. <laughs> and so you can guarantee, you can guarantee that something's coming around and after you've been puffed up, and you're high on your own self-value, that they're going to slip something in, and, you're, and, and, and then you're going to be stuck. Well, they think I'm so great. I, well, I should, I should do this for them because they think I'm so wonderful. They don't think you're wonderful. They know you're stupid. <laughs> and they know you're prideful, and they can use your pride against you. Furthermore, a man's faithfulness can serve as motivation to do better or a source of bitterness against him. Ultimately, the choice is yours. How will you choose to receive the faithfulness of godly men? If you find someone in the position you desire, then ask yourself how they got there and use that info to help make yourself better. If a diligent man's diligence is a rebuke to you, then you are either living and laboring in a crooked manner or you have a terrible attitude. If you see someone who is faithful, who is diligent, who works hard, and it makes you angry, you, you've got a serious problem you need to work out as, as soon as you can. You're going, to end up, you're going to end up in trouble. Or if you see someone, when I see someone who, who 
works hard, who is faithful, who is diligent, it motivates me. It makes me look at that person and say, how did they get that way? What are they doing? What makes them, I mean, they're always on point, always doing right, always where they're supposed to be, always producing, always being, being productive. How are they doing that? I want to know. Not so I can go take their place, but so that I can go and do what the Lord has given me to do and be as productive as possible. And if you're not doing anything productive, why live? Why exist? If you're not producing something or doing something that's going to help save souls or teach the Bible or build people up in the Lord or help the church or do something that's going to last for eternity, then what are you doing? You know, the greatest men that have worked the greatest jobs and and who were legendary in their disciplines, you know, they died and went to hell (laughs) and took none of it with them. And so what honor is there in that? Now, you can learn from those men and you can look at them and say, look how hard they worked at their craft. Well, what is your craft? Is it teaching the Bible? Is it studying the Bible? Is it? Being a husband, is it being a wife? Is it doing something godly in Christ Jesus? Well, then, if he can be so diligent, if Elon Musk can work that hard to go to Mars, (laughs) why can't you work hard to save souls? If Bill Gates can create this massive empire by hard work, why can't you help build the church? If you read the biographies of great men who accomplished what we perceive to be great things in life, the attitude you should look at, the way you should look at that is you should should say, look what they did for a corruptible crown. Why can't I do half of that for an incorruptible crown? When the decree was signed, Daniel changed nothing but continued in his normal, faithful manner. The passage indicates his windows were already open. I believe this is an important detail. He did not close the windows, hoping to conceal his faith. He also did not open the windows, hoping to to demonstrate his open defiance. The windows were already open, just as they had always been. He prayed to the Lord, altering nothing as he always had. He didn't go out of his way to be rebellious, and he did not try to hide his already well-established faithfulness. That's that's a great attitude. He didn't go to the window and say, I'm going to show these fools. I'm going to open the window. I'm going to let everybody see. In fact, I'm going to pray with a bullhorn. (laughs) So he wasn't trying to be defiant. He wasn't trying to, I'm going to show them how rebellious I am. He also didn't go close the windows and say, let me, let me hide and pray and, and try to sneak away. It, the, the verse literally says the windows were already open, indicating this was just the way things already were. He didn't alter anything because of the law. He didn't let the law make him rebellious, and he didn't let the law make him a coward. He just said, my windows are always open. I pray every day, three times a day, facing Jerusalem. I'm just going to continue that the same way. 
He had this sweet spirit about him, even in his moment of defiance. <laughs> and and that's, a, that's a great balance to have. It's a great attitude to have. And Daniel is a great example. When praying, to God, when praying to God became dangerous, Daniel did not shrink from his responsibilities. He steadfastly and soberly maintained them just as he had always done. This level of consistency is the substance that makes great men and women of God. They are always steady in their responsibilities. They don't fluctuate with time and convenience. Want to do something great for God? Just show up every day and do what you're supposed to do that day. Every day. Don't wait for, don't wait for difficulty to come and say, okay, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show the world. <laughs> That's not how it works. In fact, there's a, there's a strong chance that if you don't live faithfully before difficulty comes, you're not going to live faithfully after difficulty comes. You'll abandon God altogether. And so, just be faithful. Be consistent. Be where you're supposed to be. Do what you're supposed to do. Do it right. Do it to the best of your ability. And then when conflict between you and the world comes, what Daniel did, he just kept doing what he's supposed to be doing. He didn't alter anything. He didn't change anything. And so that's, that's what, we, what we all need to do. All right, Daniel 6, verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom and 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom, and over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was first, that the princes might give account, accounts unto them, and the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king thought to set him over the whole realm. He was just going to turn it over to Daniel. So here you have, you have the king which is Darius. Then under him, you have the chief president, which is Daniel. Then under him, you had two more presidents. They're not named. And then, of course, under them, you have 120 princes. All right, so they, they all, that's the flow of Information, instructions, money, I mean, whatever responsibilities the king gave to them. And after getting to know Daniel, Darius was willing to just turn the whole realm over to him. And Daniel probably would have done a better job. In Daniel chapter 6, we are at the start of the second world empire under the times of the Gentiles. When Daniel is appointed president... He is in his late 80s or early 90s, and yet his reputation remains solid. The existence of the presidents is partial testimony to the loss of absolute power by the Persian kings. Nebuchadnezzar had no presidents, no Congress, and was not subject to a concept like the laws, the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which changeth not. But Cyrus, Darius, and the other Persian kings were subject to these legal concepts 
that lessen their political power. So it, it, it's a decline in strength. In strength. That's, it's so interesting to me because all that exists is a law. And the king decreed that law. But once he signs this into law, once it becomes active, there is nothing he can do to change it. Isn't that interesting? It's just written words on a piece of paper. And yet it governed an entire kingdom and could not be altered. I just I find that fascinating that there, there, in America, there's a kind of a, a concept that they talk about the spirit of the law. And what they mean by that is when a law, you know, it, when a law is in place that the U.S. government put in place, as, say, if you're a police officer, you have there's some room for interpretation and some men, the way they interpret the law as, as a police officer, they can be a lot more lenient. They're, they're not as strict. They give a lot of leeway. Other men take it word for word. Exactly what it says is what they're going to do. And so those men, they say, believe in the spirit of the law. They, they, whatever the law says, there's no leeway. There's no room for discussion or or. Um, or you know you, whatever whatever you do, if it violates that law, according to the way it's written, you have to be dealt with. And and so it's amazing to me that back in those days, when a man like Darius had the type of power that he had, or Cyrus, who was even more powerful, they have they have this extreme power, and yet when they put a law in place, that's it. They're bound. Nebuchadnezzar would have laughed at them. <laughs> would have laughed in their face. You did what? <laughs> you put yourself under a law? <laughs> like, I am the law. <laughs> so it's a decline in power. And uh, Darius is, is going to be subject to that in a very difficult way. Uh, let's read verses 4 through 9. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom but they could not, they could, they could find none occasion nor fault, for as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. Is this, maybe this is the pre-incarnate Jesus <laughs> walking around. You know, this is how people had to describe Jesus, even as a boy. They're like, he doesn't do anything wrong. Well, that's what's wrong with him. He doesn't do anything wrong. <laughs> Verse 5. Then said these men, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Then these presidents and princes assembled together to the king and said thus unto him, King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors and the princes, the counselors and the captains have consulted together uh, without Daniel to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for 30 days, save thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. 
Who has a den of lions sitting around to throw people in? What, what kind of kingdom is this? <laughs> Who has a furnace of fire to throw people in and a, king, and a den of lions just in case somebody does something wrong? Like, you've got to be creative in thinking about how to kill people if, if that's what you've got sitting around. It's like, how are we going to kill somebody today? I know. I've got a bunch of starving lions. <laughs> I, just, I don't understand that. All right. Anyways, um, all the presidents of the kingdom, verse 8, Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which altereth not. Wherefore, King Darius didn't think about it, didn't null it over, didn't ask anybody else, didn't think it through, didn't ask questions. He just signed the writing and the decree. That means he was so overwhelmed at the idea of him being exalted in that manner. What is there to think about? I mean, I am pretty great. And everybody has to pray to me and ask me questions. I mean, I think I could really help my people in this way. So let's just sign it. Wait a minute. There could be some some implications here that you haven't thought about. No, probably not. (laughs) Just sign it. Okay, now it's law and it can't be altered. By the way, you just condemned Daniel, who you love, to death. And again, it's not in my notes. Uh, It should be. Where's everybody else? Did they just obey the law? Were they not praying in the first place? See, this is, this is the problem with weak Christianity. The modern Christianity is so much like the world in so many ways that it's hard to tell when they've taken something from us or not. <laughs> they tell you, you know, you can't do something. It's like, oh, do we do that? <laughs> You're not allowed to do this anymore in the name of your God. Was that something that we do? <laughs> How come you don't know? It's because it's Christians are so influenced by television, secular music, secular politics, all these things that have nothing to do with God or the Word of God, that when something happens in their lives, they don't even recognize something ungodly has come their way. They just go with it because... Because the politicians they follow, the talk radio they follow, the music they follow, the movies they follow, the television shows they follow, all those said it was fine. So, and my preacher watches all those and listens to all those, so he's never said anything against it, so I guess we're okay. And then somebody comes along who does study their Bible and who does recognize this as a problem and says, you shouldn't do that. Oh, you're so hateful. God said, don't do that. God said, learn not the way of the heathen. Oh, you're hateful. We're dropping your support. Get out of here. (laughs) Okay, I thought you sent me to teach the Bible. I'm just telling you what the Bible says, and now you're angry with me. You're not angry with the man or the people or the organization or whatever that is taking away your ability to properly serve God. You're mad at me, who is willing to tell you, you don't recognize you shouldn't be going that way. And so that's, that's the way these things go. Um, you've got to 
come out from among them. God meant that. There is a, again, there is a course to this world. If you're spending more time here than you are here, then when the world starts moving in its course, you're just going to go along with it. That confrontation between you and the world will never come because you don't realize that you're, you're stepping into an area of confrontation. You become comfortable with that area. That area has become normal to you. And so because something worldly and ungodly has become familiar to you and comfortable to you, you just move along with it further and further away from God. And then when God sends someone your way to say, hey, you shouldn't be doing that, you get mad at them just like Israel got mad at the prophets. (laughs) You've got to be sensitive to the word of God. You've got to study. You've got to read. You've got to check the areas of your life and make sure that they are moving along in a biblical fashion. And the way to check that is with the word of God, not with what other Christians are doing. There are a lot of people who call themselves Christians and they do some things that would really make you scratch your head and say, how can you do do you not realize that what you just did and what you called yourself are miles apart? (laughs) They have no relationship. No, they don't realize that at all. They think they can just call if I just if I told you I'm a NASA engineer, would you would you get on a space shuttle that I built? (laughs) I didn't think so. I told you I built an airplane. Skylar, you go fly it. (laughs) I think I'll keep my feet on the ground. Thank you, though. I appreciate it. Because I can't just call myself that and then go try to make something because I called myself that. You can't just call yourself a Christian. It comes with biblical, biblically defined responsibilities. And if you're not making sure the different areas of your life, your speech, your thoughts, your your actions, your relationships, all those things are are biblically defined. Well, you're going to end up you're going to end up swept away by the course of this world and you're not going to know it. Too many Christians today don't even know what they don't know. They don't even realize that in in. It's far too common that they have no relationship with biblical Christianity whatsoever, though they attend a church that calls itself a Bible-believing church. It's frustrating. And I'm going to move on because it's going to end up getting me in trouble. If I start naming names and identifying something more specific, then I'll get more weeping, welling, and gnashing of teeth, and whining and crying and murmuring. These men knew that Daniel was deeply religious and dedicated to his God. These men were also, these men were so ambitious to overtake Daniel that they proposed a decree that shamed their own religious positions. Now imagine that. You know these men had a religion that they followed. And in order to take out Daniel, they were willing to throw that out the window. <laughs> I want Daniel's position. I don't care about the gods. As long as the king will do what we want so that we can get rid of Daniel, we'll, worry, we'll, we'll make our gods happy later. My little totem pole that I had carved out in my living room, I'll go pet it or, you know, 
I, deck it in silver and gold or do something. I don't know. I'll, I'll make it happy. That's, that's the benefit of having a God you made. You get to make up if it's happy or not. You get to decide if your God is happy or not. The decree would mean that Daniel, as well as these men who proposed it, could not pray for the set amount of time. If Daniel obeyed the law, then he would lose his stature of faithfulness and unwavering. If he disobeys the law, then they get to put him to death and his position becomes open for someone else to take. So he's in a, again, it's, it's an ultimatum. It's a, difficult, it's a difficult position to be in. Daniel, you can, you can obey the law and embarrass yourself and ruin, ruin the, the, um, the, the position of faithfulness that we've known you to have. Or you can disobey the law, which is what we're hoping you'll do, and we can take you out. So either way, it's a lose-lose for Daniel if God doesn't show up. Fortunately, God did show up, and it worked out well. It seems the Persian Empire was a kingdom of laws, and that fact may have produced certain redeeming qualities. When the law is applied faithfully and justly, people feel comfortable living life in a productive manner. If you think your labor will be punished by a corrupt government, you'll be less likely to try and be a productive member of society. Look at the extent these men have to go in order to try and use the legal system in a corrupt manner. When you, when you, if you really examine the situation, it, it reveals a fairly, a, a fairly stable society with a low level of corruption. Look what these men had to do in order to try and corrupt the legal system. They had to go to, 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 to a large extent, and they're, and they're putting their own lives at great risk. All right, so Darius may not have been as powerful. Cyrus may not have been as powerful as Nebuchadnezzar. But they still have a den of lions, <laughs> which means the king can decree that you get thrown in there. So they're really toying with their lives by, by taking this on. They were taking a huge chance. But in the end, their corruption would be their destruction. Let's read verse 10 and 11. Verse 10. Now then Daniel knew that the writing was signed. He went into his house and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem. He kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before, before his God as he did aforetime. I mean, that's, that's key to the whole situation. That's key to Daniel's attitude. Whatever he did before, that's what he's doing now. He didn't alter this or change this in any way to try and be overtly rebellious or to be quiet and cowardly. He just said, whatever I've been doing, I'm going to keep doing it. Verse 11, then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplications before his God. This passage presents an excellent example of our responsibilities before the governments of this world. We obey them until they ask us to do something strictly ungodly. Then we have to respectfully decline. But when we decline, we do so knowing the government has the power to punish us. And they may choose to exercise that power. We don't fight the government. We don't riot. We don't form militias. 
Obedience to God's word and preaching God's word are the solution given to us in the word of God. If asked, we honestly inform the government of our intentions. If we are not asked, we continue to serve the Lord faithfully as God requires of us. But we do so knowing there may be temporal consequences and the Lord may remove those consequences or he may not. And there's probably more chance that he will not than there is that he will. You should just expect he's not going to. And then when he does, praise the Lord. And when he doesn't, well, you're going to be at the foot of the throne praising the Lord. <laughs> so either way, it, it, it works out. When it came to the question of loyalty, Daniel preferred obedience to God rather than saving his own life. In fact, the plot these men used to entrap Daniel was based on the hope that Daniel would not waver. These men had judged Daniel rightly. As such, their plan worked flawlessly. Could, could men put together a plot of this sort and use your faithfulness against you in that way? I mean, they have to know that Daniel was so robotically faithful that they knew if they could get this law implemented, it would, it would hurt Daniel. Is that true of my life and your life? I know it's not true of my life. I'm nothing like Daniel. <laughs> I wish I were. I think it's, he's a, it's an excellent example and something that all of us should strive for. Uh, but Daniel was, you know, that what, what makes this hard is that Daniel was a, like, a man of like passions, like as you are. <laughs> And yet God said he had an excellent spirit. He was faithful. He just seemed to do everything right. He just handled everything the right way. Uh, he, he is a faithful brother. So there is, there'll be much to talk to Daniel about when we get to heaven or in the kingdom or wherever it is we see him. Verses 12 through 15. Verse 12. Then they came near and spake before the king concerning the king's decree. Hast thou not signed a decree? See, stuff like that drives me insane. Oh, oh king, didn't you sign a decree? You know I signed a decree. What do you want? What are you asking me? Quit playing. Then they came near and spake before the king concerning the king's decree. Hast thou not signed a decree that every man that shall ask a petition of any god or man within 30 days... Save thee, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. The king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Then answered they and said before the king, That Daniel. You know, the king had to cringe at those words. Anybody but him. And, and you know, all the questions he should have asked suddenly probably started popping into his head. Like, oh, why didn't I? I should, I should not have signed that. But you did. And it can't be altered. And so now Daniel is stuck in a ridiculous situation because you didn't think about it. And so now the, now the king hears those terrible words that he probably didn't expect. That Daniel, which is of the children of the captivity of Judah, regardeth not thee, O king, 
nor the decree that thou hast signed, but maketh this petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men assembled unto the king and said unto the king, Know, O king, that the law of the Medes and Persians is that no decree nor statute which the king establisheth may be changed. Verse 15. All right. That Daniel, they try and use manipulative language meant to demonstrate Daniel is an outsider. Not only so, but he also does not appreciate you or your laws, dear king. <laughs> we love you. Daniel doesn't. Daniel doesn't appreciate you. That Daniel, I mean, we, we've only prayed to you. Daniel is not obeying your laws. And notice the king could care less about the stupid law at this point. Now, all he knows is somebody he cares about has been put in a foolish situation because he didn't think this through. Their manipulation did not work. Instead, the king was sore displeased with himself. That says a lot about Darius. Now, obviously, he was, you know, self-absorbed enough to think it was a good idea to sign this decree, which was foolish. But now he is sore displeased with himself. Those are some powerful words. He's, he's not concerned about the law being broken. He knows what has to happen next, and he's upset with himself because he allowed this to happen. It was a foolish thing to do. This further demonstrates a few realities. First, the king labors all day and night to try and circumvent the law, but there was no solution. Once the law was sealed, it must be carried out. This demonstrates the importance of laws. If they exist, they need to be fairly enforced and obeyed. If the law exists and no one obeys it or enforces it, then your legal system means absolutely nothing. Darius is subject to this legal concept, but Nebuchadnezzar would have changed the law on the spot. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar would have said, no, no, we're not doing that. You're going in the lion's den. I see what you did now. Darius can't. A, a legal system, a, a legal machine is in place, and Darius the king, Cyrus the king, cannot alter it. It's just not going to happen. By the way, just, just to help you see how all this works to this hierarchy that we have here. So you have Darius the king, but Darius is king of what? Of the Chaldeans. He took the Chaldeans from Belshazzar. He took this kingdom. Cyrus, this is, this is what I want you to see. This is Cyrus. He's the big, big king who's over other kings. He is the king of Persia. All right, so you have this, uh, what looks like a, a system of kings. And so here you might have over another area, uh, Ahasuerus, 
And then another king would be Artaxerxes. All right, so you have these different, what looks like different kings serving under Cyrus, who's the head king. And, and, but their ter- the, territories, the territories he owns are so vast that he has, it looks like he has different kings in different places. Um, though the historical narrative regarding the Persian kings is so confusing and makes no sense whatsoever. Um, this is what I put together from the Bible until, until the, until the uh, historical people can put together something more reliable. That's what I'm going with. Second, Darius loved Daniel. I believe this played a major role in the letters written in Ezra chapters 4. I said 4 through 5, but it's actually 4 through 6. Let me edit that real quick. All right, never mind. Um, We're going to read those. It's a lot. We're going to go through as much as we can. Yeah, we'll start now. Ezra chapter 4. We'll go through as much as we can right now. Start, start in Ezra chapter 1, and we'll try to connect all these dots together. Now, who remembers what, what, what is significant about 2 Chronicles 36 related to Judah? Who remembers what is in 2 Chronicles 36 related to Judah? What information is given without looking back to see? No, it's not a prophecy. Uh, I mean, he does, he does tell of that, but that's... What is 2 Chronicles 36, chapter 36 about? What is it? Yes. The captivity of Judah. It goes in detail. So it's, it's a clear, concise narrative that details the captivity of Judah. So look at 2 Chronicles 36, verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him an house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? The Lord his God be with him and let him go up. So we've read this chapter multiple times this semester and referred to it multiple times where it gives all the details of Judah going into captivity with Nebuchadnezzar taking them. And then they're in, in Babylon for 70 years, and then Cyrus takes Babylon, puts Darius in charge. Cyrus signs a decree sending them back to Jerusalem, right? That's what we just read in those two verses. Everybody see that so far? All right, Ezra chapter 1, the very next book of the Bible... Verse 1, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Now, when Cyrus puts it in writing, what does that mean? It's the law of the Medes and the Persians <laughs> that altereth not. All right, so he put it in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven, hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and, and he hath charged me to build him an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts and with freewill offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites uh, with all them whose spirit God had raised up to, the, to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and they that were about them, uh, they they and they that were about them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver and gold, and so so that they give them all this stuff to take back and to use to build, and then they account for the people, they account for the vessels by the look at uh, look at verse eleven, all the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400, and all these did Sheshbazar. Now, that's Zerubbabel. Uh, Sheshbazar, I'm guessing, is his Persian name. Zerubbabel was likely his Babylonian name. Uh, all these did Sheshbazar bring up with them of the captivity that were brought up from Babylon unto Jerusalem. So Cyrus gives him all those vessels that Belshazzar thought he should drink out of, that Nebuchadnezzar took and put in the house of his God, he gives them back to the Jews, to Judah. They account for them. And then chapter 2, they account for all the people. They begin making a list of, of what people are coming back and who they are. And they, and they make the long trek back. And then chapter 3, and when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities of the people, of uh, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem, then stood up Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren, the priest, and Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is also Sheshbazar. Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of, of, of the God of Israel. So Cyrus gives a decree. They go back. So chapter 1, you have the decree. Chapter 2, they account for people. And by then they have the they have the people and the vessels, which part of that was in chapter one. Chapter three, they get back and immediately, I mean immediately, they rebuild the altar and the foundation. And then trouble comes. That's as far as they get. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do, 
And we do sacrifice unto, unto him since Esau hadn't. Do you remember us reading about him a few weeks ago? Esau hadn't led. So after Judah was taken captive, Esau hadn't uh, led people into Samaria and into eventually down into Judah. And they began to intermingle with the Jews who were left behind. Remember we talked about that? And then who did that end up, end up producing? Samaritans, that, that mixed breed of Jews and, and, and Gentiles. All right, Esau had king of Asser, which brought us up hither. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, You have nothing to do with us to build an house unto our God. Now, I understand that's harsh, but that's the proper answer. So when somebody shows up and you know, says, oh, we have a, a good deeds foundation. We're going to help people. We want to join with you. No. I, I, if you're building hospitals to help people, praise the Lord. I hope, I hope you build a million hospitals. And I hope it goes well. But we're not the same. We're not doing the same thing. All right? You're trying to help people. You know, the problem with building your hospital is you're going you're gonna to help a few sick people, praise the Lord, but you're also going to give abortions. All right? I'm not helping you with that. If you're in some parts of the world, you're going to help people give transgender surgeries and all sorts of weird things. I'm not helping you with that. And not only so, but you're going to help somebody that has a cold and then they're going to die and go to hell. That's not what we're here for. We're trying to help people escape condemnation. It's a much loftier goal. Now, the world doesn't see it that way. They think that because we're Christians and, you know, you should build hospitals and schools and give people money and food and all these things and... You couldn't find support for that in the Word of God if you search for it for the rest of your life. It doesn't exist. There's nothing wrong with doing nice things for people if you can do that, but that's not why we are here. That is temporal. That is going to help a few people here and there. Most of them won't get help. It'll just be another waste of time and waste of money. Africa doesn't need more aid. They don't need more people giving them solar panels and toilets. You don't even use toilets. <laughs> Western world, the Western world comes here and builds a shower for Ugandans. And then the Ugandans go outside and stand in a basin and pour water over their head. It's like, what do you think you're doing to help people? It's not a part of their lifestyle. You're not helping them in any way. And they're going to they're have a shower and then die and go to hell. All right, so, so that's, you understand what I'm saying? That's, that's not, we don't join together with these people. There's a, there's a guy here, nicest guy in the world. I mean, he's just, just a, a great guy. He lives out close to Brother Tellman. He drills boreholes and does all these great things for people, and everybody loves him. And then he goes and gets drunk with them, and they're all going to die together and go to hell. Nice guy. I appreciate what he's doing. But that's not what we're here for. That's not going to help your soul. If, if, if I can help you to get saved and you will let me teach you the word of God, you won't need anybody else's help. You'll stand on your own two feet and you'll rely on the Lord God of heaven. Now, do you want America's money or do you want God's help? You have to decide. God's help comes because he loves you. America's money, China's money, Europe's money, it comes with strings attached. 
And it's meant more to make them feel better about themselves than it is to help you. (laughs) All right. So anyways, enough of that. But we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel, asking Cyrus, the king of Persia, uh, hath commanded commanded us. Verse 4. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So from Cyrus to Darius, king of Persia. All right. So what that looks like is that at some point Cyrus passed off the scene and Darius may have taken this place as the head king. All right, now sometimes it refers to Darius as the king of the Chaldeans. It refers to him as king of Persia. Um, It just, there's not enough. The Bible doesn't distinguish between these men enough to be as definitive as we'd like to be. So, and history, when I look at the history books, I'm like, what, why did you even attempt to write this? Basically, you wrote a book to tell everybody that you don't have a clue. Why would you write a book to tell people you don't have a clue who the kings are? Yes. So the book of history in between. So it looks like it. Yes. Yeah. So so we're gonna read this in in just a second. But uh, I believe the king in Esther is Ahasuerus, and so or no, is it Artaxerxes? Yeah, Ahasuerus. So um, Mordecai has a relationship with the people. Um, who were taken into captivity, uh, the people related to Zerubbabel. All right, so, so there, there's, there's some interesting relationships there. We won't have time to go into it. I, I did a study on this when I studied through the book of Haggai, and I taught a lesson on it where it looks like, so if you, we're, we're going to look at it, we're looking at this for a reason, but the big picture, and then we'll, we'll take a quick break. Darius, we're going to read these letters, and you're going to see Darius's response. And his response is <laughs> sharp. He, he gets the third. There are three letters. He gets the third letter. And Darius' resp- response is, you're going to let them rebuild the city. You're going to pay for it. You're going to stay out of your way, their way. Or I'm going to tear your house down, hang you, and we're back to your home being turned into a dunghill. That's what Darius says. Why? Why does Darius respond so harshly? This is my theory, all right? First of all, Darius loves Daniel, right? Daniel 9, 1. Yes, Darius, who is Darius? The son of who? Ahasuerus. Whose life was saved by who? Okay, so you put all this together. If if it's the same Darius, that means this Darius loves Daniel, has a close Daniel. And what did those men call Daniel when they accused him before Darius? He is of the children of the captivity of Judah. Where is Mordecai from? Israel. So Darius knows that Daniel is excellent 
Mordecai saved my father's life. And now I've received this letter from people saying they want to they want to stop the children of Judah from rebuilding their city. I'm not having it. So he writes a letter back to them saying, you're going to let them rebuild. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.